I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. After a brief ceasefire, the war in Syria has been renewed in all its horror. Is there anything that can stop it? Joining me on the line to discuss that and the latest developments in the war are two of our foreign correspondents, Erica Solomon in Beirut and Jeff Dyer, who's at the UN in New York. Erica, the bombardment of Aleppo and the war going on there seems now more intense than ever. That's right. Last night, Aleppo, which is Syria's second city, had some of the worst bombings that I think we've seen in many months. Pictures that were being sent from medical workers there and activists showed night skies completely lit up by the intensity of the bombings, which look to have the indications of incendiary bombs, which are similar to phosphorus and which are banned under international law. It seems like the trigger for the end of the ceasefire and the resumption of full hostilities was this pretty horrifying bombing of a UN aid convoy. What do we know about that? The Russians were blamed in the West, but are trying to say it wasn't them. What's your best interpretation of what happened? What we know about the convoy is that it was negotiated by local actors, members of the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, to cross a frontline area between the regime and the rebels. They claimed that they got permission from all sides and that it was clear what time they were going to cross. The Red Crescent itself has declined to indicate who they believe is responsible on an official level. But actually, we've checked the Facebook pages of a lot of the members of the group itself, and they are all blaming Russia. So the sense on the ground, regardless of what side they're on in the conflict, seems to be that they believe that the bombing was done by a Russian jet. That said, we don't have definitive proof. There's no way to be 100% sure Because for the people on the ground, they're just seeing things from the sky. And as has been very well publicized, Russia and the U.S. are trading blame for this. But I think there's very little doubt from the Red Crescent, which tries very hard to be neutral. Their members definitely think it was, if not Russia, it was the regime. And Jeff, what are the Americans saying? You're normally based in Washington. They put a lot of effort into trying to get this ceasefire together. Just first of all, if it was the Russians, why do the Americans think they did this? And what's their interpretation of Russian motives at this stage? Well, they're not getting into motives quite yet. I mean, they are unofficially saying they're pretty sure it was the Russians, although there still is the possibility it could have been the Syrian regime conducted this airstrike. Officially, what they're saying is that they're still trying to keep the ceasefire and the peace plan alive. We're speaking on Thursday morning, New York time, there's going to be another meeting of the various countries involved in the Syrian conflict Thursday afternoon, where they're going to try and revive the ceasefire and really have one last go to try and put it back in place because they really don't feel there are any other options. But what the Russian motives might be, that's a more difficult question. I mean, the cynical view would be that the underlying Russian motivation behind this whole ceasefire plan is to try and drive a wedge between the US and the anti-Assad rebels that the US is backing. And that by having the ceasefire and pulling the U.S. more towards the Russian position, that's going to create even more distrust amongst the rebels about Washington and Russia will come out winning. The other view is that actually 
you know, Russia has much less control of events here than people might think, that they're trying to get the Assad regime to stop at least the war for the time being, to try and reduce the violence. They have achieved their strategic objectives in the short term at least, but they're not actually able to get the Assad regime to do what they want to do. That's another interpretation some people have of what the Russians are up to at the moment. Erica, from uh, you know, much closer to the war itself, of those two interpretations, which would you incline to? I think it's actually both. In terms of the convoy itself, I don't have any more information than Jeff has, but in terms of the general dynamics that we're seeing in Syria on the ground, I think both are actually happening. Most diplomats here in Beirut or who come back and forth from Damascus believe that Russia's main aim from this ceasefire deal was to bring the U.S. on side with them and to say, you're fighting with us against jihadist groups that are in Syria, and perhaps even to, as Jeff pointed out, kind of create this wedge or create those tensions with the opposition. But the other thing that is definitely also the case is that lack of control that Jeff described. I've been hearing from diplomats who are very close to Moscow, who are also based in Damascus, that Russia is constantly frustrated with the regime in terms of getting it to commit to the things that they agree to with the United States. Something that happened previously was a big deal here but didn't make international headlines was a deal that the regime agreed to evacuate an entire suburb of Damascus that was held by the opposition. Russia committed to preventing that from happening. The suburb was called Daraya. And the regime ended up doing it anyway. And it was basically a message that you can't stop us from doing what we want. We're a sovereign state. And that message was received quite to the annoyance of Moscow and its diplomatic partners here in the region. So, Jeff, how does that leave the Americans now as they attempt to find some sort of way forward? Because, in a sense, what's just happened has been a real humiliation for John Kerry, who's left looking like a dupe and America looks weak and, indeed, they have antagonised their erstwhile allies on the ground. I think that the reason why they're trying to keep this plan going, even though on the ground it has completely fallen apart, is because they don't really have a plan B. This is the one option that they have at the moment. Other options they could pursue are things that really the President Obama has ruled out, things like maybe trying to create a no-fly zone, a safe zone in the north where refugees would go and could maybe become sort of a staging ground for rebel groups. That's something that some people have proposed within the administration. That's something that Hillary Clinton has talked about on the campaign trail. But President Obama has rejected that. And he fears that if he started trying to set up that kind of safe zone within Syria, he would end up finding himself in a direct confrontation with the Russians. So given that they're not prepared to go down that type of military route, the only options available to them are putting a few more troops, you know, special forces into the ground, giving a few more arms to the rebel groups, escalating the fighting a little bit on the ground, or pushing this deal through the Russians where they, they try and find ways, diplomatic ways, to, to stop the fighting. But the result, as you said, is that they end up in a situation where they're utterly dependent on the Russians. They have no real leverage, and essentially their only play is to say to the Russians, these are your interests, this is what you should be doing. And that's not a very effective negotiating tactic, and as you said, it makes America look very weak and ineffective in political terms. And yet, if one looks at, I suppose, the underlying logic of it, I suppose the Americans and the Russians do share an interest in the defeat of Islamic State. Why is that not enough for them to create some kind of understanding? Well, in practical terms, you know, the American military is very reluctant to actually cooperate with the Russian military, even when they are going after someone who they would see as very much a common enemy in terms of ISIS, for all sorts of reasons, but partly because the American military doesn't want to be giving away to the Russians any indications of how it collects intelligence, where its satellites are, all that sort of stuff could be very valuable to the Russians and vice versa. So just in practical terms, there are reasons why they don't want to work together. And more broadly, 
ultimately comes down to the question of the Assad regime. I mean, it's one thing to say we can fight against ISIS, but there still is this question of what do you do about the, f- the political future of Syria. And they still haven't been able to square the circle of the U.S. wanting the Assad to go and Russia thinking that he's really the only option they have and that if he goes, then maybe the whole Syrian state would collapse and you'd have some sort of Libya-Iraq type situation. They've never really been able to find ultimate common ground in that position, and that's really what's kept them apart all these years. So finally, Erica, it always, in all these conversations about Syria, have varieties of bleakness, but it does look particularly bleak at the moment. Can you see any way that the situation might look better in a few months' time? I honestly think that we're in a very, very difficult period right now, actually, and it's in some ways tied to the U.S. elections on November 8th. Right now, a lot of people on the ground in Syria, whether there are um, the regime, the rebels, even Russia think that their logic is circling around the issue of the presidential elections and what they think is more in their interest. So in some ways, I think we might see a lot of troubling dynamics emerge as people try to do whatever they can. So for example, Russia will probably try to get as much of a deal as it can with the Americans before, out of concern that Hillary Clinton might win the elections. The rebels have an interest in basically prolonging the situation as it is, hoping that the next president that comes in will be more in their favor. So um, I think given where we are right now, I don't see any prospects for the situation to improve. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for that uh, honest assessment. Erica Solomon in Beirut. Thanks also to Jeff Dyer in New York. That's it for this week. Until next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Goodbye.